a playlist original. Coming soon. Coming soon. Coming soon. Coming soon. Coming soon. Coming soon. A playlist original. This is the Films at Home podcast, your source for everything home entertainment. Hey everyone, today's episode of the Films at Home podcast is sponsored by Fright Rags. Fright Rags is an online retailer of horror movie related merchandise. So they've got shirts, they've got sweatshirts, they've got hats, beanies, socks, pins, you name it. If you like horror movies, you need to check out FrightRags.com. I love their stuff. I've been a customer for many years, and so I was super excited when they were willing to sponsor the podcast, and I have plenty of their shirts, including the one that I'm wearing right now, which is my Escape from New York shirt. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see that, but I also picked up a new Halloween shirt, a new Jaws shirt, and they have all your favorite movie franchises like The Exorcist, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Basket Case. I mean, you name it, they have shirts for you. So listeners of the Films at Home podcast, you get 10% off your order at FrightRags.com by using code FILMSATHOME10. That's all one word, FILMSATHOME10. So check out FrightRags.com. That's Fright-Rags.com. I'll put a link down in the episode description. Go support them. Thank them for supporting the podcast. I love their stuff. I wouldn't vouch for them if I wasn't wearing it right now and I've been a lifelong customer of theirs. You'll really like the quality. You'll love their unique designs and artwork on their shirts guarantee you won't be disappointed so use code films at home 10 at frightrags.com to get 10 percent off your order today hey everyone jeff here from films at home thank you for coming back to the podcast today now today's episode i it's going to be a long one because i could have talked to this guy for i swear a whole day of time allowed um, we're talking to matt patterson today he's a physical media home entertainment industry expert uh, matt worked at warner archive under the uh, warner archive label for 11 years from 2009 uh, up until 2020 so matt was one of the main guys behind the scenes at that label he worked with acquisitions he worked with marketing he was a film genius when it came to warner brothers and what they did with the archive label he also ran the warner archive podcast which has tons of episodes if you want to check that out and he's currently running his own podcast with one of his other uh, co-workers who used to work at warner archive called the archive guys so he is very well versed in home entertainment and physical media he's he goes to comic con he's hosted panels he's done tons of marketing for different titles and he's just a really really smart and talented and unique guy so i was really excited to talk to him Matt's actually also a writer producer. He actually has a, a film going around right now called Lunamancer, which is going around sci-fi film festivals, which you guys should check out. And he's actually the writer of uh, this film is not yet rated, which was a documentary on the MPAA and their film ratings and how that sort of evolved how that goes on behind the scenes. It was a big hit on like early Netflix, like way back in the day on Netflix. I've actually seen it. I had no idea Matt actually wrote the movie when I saw it, but it's an excellent documentary that you guys should check out. So this was a, a, such a great conversation, but I will give you guys a fair warning. It takes a couple left and right turns. You know, we talk about a few different topics. Uh, Matt is just such an, an interesting, entertaining individual that, you know, I just sort of let it go where it went and had a conversation with him. So obviously we talk home entertainment and physical media, but we also talk like collecting mindset and digital collectibles and sort of like, you know, where collecting may be heading in the future. So it turned into a really, really interesting conversation that I think you guys will enjoy. So check out all the links in the description for all the places you can find Matt. But uh, without further ado, let's jump into the interview. So sit back, relax, and I'll talk to you guys at the end. 
All right, we're back, guys. Matt Patterson, welcome to the podcast, sir. Thank you for uh, taking the time today. Thanks for joining us on the Films at Home podcast. Uh, Want to give people a little bit of background on you? What are what are your credentials? Why are you here? Why did I bring you on? Hello, uh, I am Matt Patterson, and for the last. Whew, Decade. I guess for 12 years, I worked with uh, Warner Brothers, uh, first in digital distribution and then home entertainment. And I helped start up the Warner Archive Boutique label uh, at Warner Brothers and witnessed it uh, kind of firsthand. You know, there weren't that many people to uh, who worked there that as long as I did. There were a few people uh But it's a very interesting story on how it came to be and how it lasted and continues really to this day, uh, as long Mm. as it has in a changing, rapidly changing in many, many ways, home entertainment market. Yeah. So, I mean, let's, you want to dive into that? Because I am curious, like we're going back to what, 2010 when Warner Archive kicks off? Yeah, I started in 2009, and my personal origin story, which I actually did not find out all the details about until 2016, when I had a lunch with the guy who hired me. Interestingly, we were in Scotland. We both happened to be there. He was like, oh, hey, come have lunch with me. I'm like, yes, that seems very appropriate. And he turned... (laughs) to his wife and he said, Matt is my favorite hire almost ever, but certainly at Warner Brothers, because one day, right before we launched the, the WB shop at uh, in March of 2009, we hired Matt for one day. And he's been there at that point for almost 10 years. And I said, one day? <laughs> And so I you had no idea. No, I immediately <laughs> went home and look, I had the email from when I got <laughs> the offer and there was no mention that it was one day <laughs> and it didn't say like, you know, there was nothing about terms, but I uh, was working with an agency and they said, how would you like to work with Warner Brothers? And I said, okay. And they're like, okay, show up. <laughs> wow. And uh, they gave me uh, some uh, mostly graphics tasks. Uh, and I was like, wow, there's a lot of stuff going on. You know, I'm in this little office. And they're like, yeah, we're launching a website tomorrow, which was uh, Warner Brothers' first direct-to-consumer Website that they had sold uh, merchandise like fashion stuff and, you know, hats and T-shirts before, but they had not sold anything home entertainment. And they were uh, launching it the next day. And (laughs) so they obviously needed help. And I, at that point, I didn't have a laptop. So I had gone to Apple the day before and I borrowed a credit card because I couldn't afford it at the time. And 
I got a I got a credit card and I bought a new laptop. And the people at the at the Apple store said I had thirty days when I could return it. And I was like, okay. And I put the Adobe software package on it, which had a thirty day free trial. <laughs> yep. And I showed up, and at the end of the day, I said, okay, guys, um, see you tomorrow. And the vice president at the time and this guy who I had lunch with looked at each other and they said, sure. And so (laughs) they just never let me go. Uh, And he said at the time that they were impressed with my confidence that I would come in and say, see you tomorrow. But it was totally from a place of ignorance. Okay. So you had like, you, you may, you may have had the best first day of anybody ever then. (laughs) Yeah. And I didn't find out for seven years. (laughs) Like, I love that. That he just dropped that on you. So casually at one point, Yeah, my mind, it was like it, it, that itself was like a movie where all of a sudden it was like, zoom in. (laughs) And then I'm remembering and I'm like, Oh, but my second stroke of good fortune was that three weeks later, they officially launched the W, uh, you know, on the WB shop. It was part of the WB shop was the Warner archive label. Mm -hmm. And the Warner archive label was designed at the time. Uh, My boss, George Feltenstein and some other uh, executives who were there in the home entertainment for a while. You can, George has told this story many times and it's fascinating, but, uh, even starting with CDs, they were like, uh, there are certain, uh, you know, things that they had masters for, even CD time, which stores, they, they didn't feel could sell at retail because uh, books and records and movies, you uh, returns were a big problem. If you couldn't hmm. project the proper, you know, proper sales and you got stuck with all these returns that cut way into your profits. So sure. Especially when you got into catalog video, you know, no matter what you did, right. The profitability of it could, was low unless it was, yeah. you know, kind of obvious. And so by using a manufactured on demand method, right. There was no, uh, there's no inventory until at the time the WB shop that would send an order and then, a disc would be made, a cover would be printed, and it would be shipped to the customer. I thought that mm-hmm. was radical uh, re- and something that I understood from my previous work. Uh, you know, I had uh, authored a book and I had worked on documentaries. I, I co-wrote a documentary a few years before uh, called This Film Is Not Yet Rated, but I, I was always interested in the business end, I'd always, you know, for at that point, I had websites up and running for over 10 years. And this mm-hmm. just really hit me personally, like this is brilliant, right? And uh, on the day that the product launched, uh, there was uh, on the Today Show, Debbie Reynolds came up and, and she introduced the concept and it was all uh, the the marketing people who were first involved on the on the publishing end not on the retail end which is where i started 
uh, focused on a classic movie audience. But Mm -hmm. my eventual boss, George, had also in the initial order put a lot of cult movies in there. And when it launched, more of the press was about the cult movies than the classics. And I remember uh, the guy who said yes to me after day one, he's looking at, because we could see where people were coming from, right? Tracking back from the website. Sure. And, uh, he go- and he was German and he goes, what is this website? Ain't it cool news? <laughs> and I was like, um, it's ain't it cool news. And it's promoting Freebie and the Bean, which is a title that people want. And he just kind of looked at me. And then all of a sudden, another light went on in my head. And I go, oh, they don't know. Right? And so uh, me, one other guy who happened to be sitting next to me who started the same day. And he eventually became vice president in charge of Warner Archive. And, you know, we got together with George and we created this whole marketing platform that the studio hadn't done before, which was using digital marketing to talk directly to consumers. And we started, you know, doing sales and promotions. And when our first year sales were about 10 times what was projected, we were able to start funneling the money back into masters and started making new masters, right? Rather than using Mm -hmm good existing masters. And then from there, uh, you know, like uh, the guy who, uh, Mike, who was the, he had an engineering background. He really took to uh, process reform and he was the one who was able to, and then with the people who were doing the uh, mastering and the, the disc authoring, et cetera, et cetera, the whole team got behind bringing those costs down as low as possible, maximizing the quality of the image, even for the dopiest releases and uh, communicating that to the customers that we, uh, you know, knew what we were doing in a way, right? I mean, you know, everybody makes mistakes and stuff, but, but having that back and forth with the customers was very, very important to the growth. And then we moved on to, you know, newer technologies. We started Warner Brothers' first subscription video on-demand service, which is like the great-grandfather of HBO Max, right? And, you know, we we worked a lot of kinks out of that system. And then uh, we were able to add Blu-rays. And those... You know, and then it sort of became an assembly on demand instead of manufactured on demand. Like they're they're on a spindle. You know, most most of the yeah. DVDs, not all, but at least to start, a lot of the DVDs are on a spindle, and so then they're pieced together. You know, we changed the cover art to make it original posters, and then we started sponsoring events, and we got more sophisticated newsletters, and we basically became a specialty distributor within the larger distribution. And so, you know, that comes with positive and negatives because we had a lot of resources and we owned, we only dealt with material that we owned. Unlike other 
indie labels, uh, we we had or you know like like we were closer to the source. That's a better way to say. It. Sure. Yeah. And that's no. I that's mean, that's basically that's basically it. But because huh. of those situations, and because we were operating under that umbrella, um, you know, we we would try to spend a lot of time on our podcast. I think there are almost. It's it's a we have like I think eleven years of Warner Archive podcasts. Uh, yeah, there's I, a lot. <laughs> yeah, I was on it uh, starting in 2012 when we kind of changed the format. Um, we basically took the newsletter and put it uh, to podcast form, and it it's it's um you know we tried to be as transparent as we could be and as clear as we could be because people who are fans of home entertainment, the number one question is why this, why now, you know, and why not something else? Like, why can't I see this? Right. And that is something I'm always curious about too, is why did X, Y, Z get released? But this huge movie that I think would sell very well, Right. Has only a DVD release. And, you know, there's rights and licensing, but there's also got to be something else to it because, you know, like you said, Warner, you have, I mean, you have everything there. So why this versus that? Well, everything there is uh, yes and no, right? (laughs) Um, We have elements and not all elements are in great shape. Uh, Not and, and there's costs involved, you know, depending on uh, what shape the master is in, how much cleanup we need to do. And especially as time went on with Blu-rays, our target became higher and higher. Like where we didn't have to, because the masters weren't necessarily provided to us, we didn't have as much bonus content on it because our distinguishing factor was we put our time and effort into the movie presentation. If we could right. port other things or I occasionally did commentaries or we would get other producers to make new commentaries or, you know, different special features, like kind of toward the end, I was doing some more of those. It's like, you know, we, and we did it with less and less people because as time went on and the company uh, changed hands or CEOs, um, our labor force became less and less. Uh, it, it started when Warner Archive started, it had zero full-time employees dedicated to Warner Archive. Uh, and that number would fluctuate, uh, you know, uh, depending on other people's job responsibilities, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. So that, that's also a part of it. Like the, uh, the streaming service was actually kind of also the same way. And, and that affects, you know, the number of people behind the scenes actually also affects what comes out, how fast yeah. it comes out, right? The good news for all consumers now is that the rush to spend money on streaming services and the rush to put in 2K or higher 
files, especially on movies. Um, there was a preservation effort that was going on when I was there and continues to bring, you know, to scan as much as possible out of the video and film library and uh, make as high quality scan as possible and put it in the vaults, the digital vaults yeah. uh, that we have at USC. Mm -hmm. So at that time, if a master can be made from those elements, then great. Uh, and if that can be cleaned up, it can be made available for Blu-ray and streaming, right? And yeah, if the streaming people want a new master because the old one isn't doesn't meet the quality standards of you know HBO Max or whatever they're aiming for, that master can then become available for physical media. So it kind of goes both ways. Did I begin yeah. to even, <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> it's very complex and I have yeah. barely stopped speaking, but that sort of is a deeper background on what the, where everything comes from. And then, right, here's the simplest, this is my TED Talk. Ready? I'm going to do my TED Talk version with my hands. <laughs> what do we have available? Do we have the rights to it? Because those change. Right. And what shape is it in? Because the more restoration it needs, the higher the cost. Mm -hmm. and, and then that, even in the micro, you know, collectible world that DVD has become rather than as a consumer item that's on a shelf, right? Because those on the shelf discs still exist and they still sell in huge numbers. But when you yep. come to the collector market, you do make a projection of sales, how, how many people will it sell? Because with a manufactured on demand, method uh, you still have to sell x amount to be profitable right it's a small number yeah but if you don't hit that number then you know you could have picked something else so what were what were some of the best that you had and i guess what were some of the big flops that <laughs> that you thought would be huge but ended up not hitting you know, like over that amount of time, uh, we ran a spreadsheet, which I like to quote, uh, which is basically like, oh gosh, it was like 92% of everything we released showed some kind of profit, right? Which pretty good. It's huge, right? But but yeah. those numbers are, right? It's not the hits business. But within that business model, you sometimes get a hit at sometimes it's like, you know, it's going to do well, uh, but, but you don't know how well, but one of the ones that I like to think of is uh, the uh, first uh, Batman animated movie, uh, mask of the phantasm, 
which to us, right, we were more having conversations with fans. We were going to Comic-Cons. And uh, while that film, you know, if you were uh, in the, you know, called in the office, right, and you were looking at box office, you know, you'd be like, oh, why would we, why would, how could that possibly, you know, do well? It just, all the projections would be weird and it's not in great shape, you know, even though it's from the 90s, but it was made very quickly because it was originally going to be a TV movie. But when you're on the ground with fans, you're like, well, that's yeah. like the, considered the first, you know, DCAU film. And they it's know historic. that. historic. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and like that, the story, maybe not everybody knows the story behind it, but it's a story that's easily told. And so we put all of our effort into it and spent a lot of time cleaning it up. And, you know, there were things that we had to decide to leave in because they were er errors that were originally made by the studios, the different studios that were rushed into doing it back (laughs) in the early nineties. And, but the response we got was, tremendous we brought the first you know five or six minutes to comic-con and got a lot of the original cast and crew and creators out for you know we filled like a thousand or fifteen hundred person room and everybody went nuts and the sales were so good that the larger home entertainment uh, business decided to take what we did, you know, the methods we used and release the whole series in a box set. Yep. So and I, I was going to guess if I had to guess that was the one I was going to pick. I have that one. I have the whole box set. I, I mean, I was born in 92. So the, that series and that show was childhood. Like that yeah. was it. I grew up getting those VHS tapes from the video store and so I, I had to have them when they came out. But yeah, I mean, I was one of those who was like, this is a huge release and I'm so happy somebody's doing it. And I, I would have guessed either that one or the wrong man were the two that I was going to guess as big sellers. Yeah. The um, wrong man is an, another big seller. The, uh, you know, like, like as, as a, we got later, you know, certain films just hadn't kind of gotten around to coming out on Blu-ray in time for big box stores, right? And so yeah. the bar of what can make it to, you know, a target, right? Like, or, yeah. I mean, Barnes & Noble has still probably, I think that that's the best place to go retail. Like, if you're going to walk in a physical store, yeah, um, nationwide, sure. Nationwide. Yeah. But yeah. So, but that's not, Barnes & Noble isn't going to make or break. I mean, I, I don't know, because w- that wasn't my business, right? But but the uh, considerations were a little different. Uh, and so, you know, something like Hitchcock uh, or The Thin Man, right? Those, the, the Thin Man movies were huge but that was also because uh it was not when they were 
first assessed for Blu-ray, the technology was different and the costs were going to be higher, right? So by the time the Thin Man movies uh, were, you know, the technology could handle it relatively inexpensively, the the market for that was kind of gone. And so it went out through MOD, but they look fantastic and, uh, you know, they, they did really well. I don't think that that surprised anybody, you know, like, like the vet, Batman surprised people, which I like. And it's a good example of having the uh, two units working correctly, right? Because we didn't, you know, we took a chance on it, but we took a chance on it, right, correctly. And and, and it paid off. And our disc that we we made, we did that one in the Sub-Zero one, which was the first, that one went directly to VHS. Uh, those two discs are in the larger set that, that we uh, produced. So it was cool, right? Because they already had those masters and then they could put, I mean, they, those are the exact same disc and that, that helped them fill out their larger uh, disc. And I got to, I got to play with cool Batman imagery and uh, <laughs> I, personally designed the ads for it because I'm like, no, no, this one's mine. I get to do it. <laughs> so what, what year, I forget what year that was. Was that 2017 or 16. 15? It was even earlier. 16 maybe. Because it's just amazing that in 2016, that whenever it was in that time range, you'd have a comic con panel for a, blu-ray release essentially right i mean i just can't would that happen now i don't know maybe like maybe if it was huge maybe zach so, snyder's justice league but you know I, I it's amazing how it's changed so much so these aren't hall h panels have you been have you been to comic-con when i not start the talking big one. No. so uh the one of the Things that uh, I'm very proud of because uh, our team really uh, pushed for this. We uh, have a had you know because uh, even up until 2020 because we we did their first um, online Comic Con, but we had oh, a yeah. great relationship with the people at Comic Con because we understood their and understand their mission right because. Their mission is, I mean, they're a nonprofit, right? And so they want to talk about and celebrate popular culture. So we would do kind of, when I, I kind of joke, like mini, mini lectures, right? Or podcasts, you know, where yeah. we aren't, I mean, the sales message is inherently in them, but by sure. talking about the history of the film and, you know, getting talent up there and getting into some different specifics uh, about the initial product and then even into a home entertainment release in a way that we're kind of talking now, uh, they would allow us, we would sometimes do four panels in one Comic-Con, which was four hours of clips that I had to pull uh, it, it, it was a lot of work, uh, where yeah. the larger organization, their method, which, you know, worked for them, but they, 
they had much larger budgets than we did, right? Like, right. Uh, and they would, you know, like, what I loved when they did a Detective Pikachu, you know, like uh, a whole like installation where you walk through and saw all the different Pokemon and then hug Pikachu at the end. And the people who worked for them, they'd all go down there and man the booth. And, you know, that yeah. that was how they promoted the home entertainment release of that, which is, you know, that that's because it's a con, it's a consumer item. Right. Uh, they're not selling you the history of Pokemon. Right. But we but yeah. ours would be like, hey, let's talk about Batman. Right. Like we would get we would have panels where we would, I think one, one of our funny ones was, uh, and this was only, I think it was only like a 500 person room, but we just did like Robin 75 and we did all the home video versions of Robin. But Michael Uslan, I think came to that one, right? So you've got Batman billionaire and like a whole bunch of creators all talking about sidekicks and like their role. Like that's a, that's a, fun panel. And then of course, every clip that's up there is one of our releases, you know, we zero in on, right. So that's right. available. So that's the sales channel, right. Cause like the only way to get it would be through Warner brothers. And hopefully if you're a home entertainment collector through us, and that's just yeah. how we would uh, represent. Right. And, and when the fortunate thing for us with, the manufactured on demand model is that nothing ever fell out of print. So from a business perspective, you know, we, we were pushing the newer stuff, but we were making, as time went on, more and more money was being made by the back catalog. Right. And yeah. so when you have a rich active back catalog where, you know, uh, when you're calculating per unit prices, it's just as valuable as a new release in terms of profits. And by keeping that in mind, when I come in and promote, you know, cause we did a, one of the, you know, last panels, God, what was the last year we did? Uh, you know, we did like V or something. And then you could promote the director's other work, which was like steel, you know, like the, <laughs> but, but that's still like, we could see, you could see a bump, right? Yeah. Well, and it's the right audience. I mean, you're talking to the right people who are going to go out and actually buy these things. So that's exactly, that's, it's, you know, that's, exactly, that's where I'm, uh-huh. that's where I'm curious, like, okay, in the future, because now it's not like just Warner archive that has become the collectible item. It's almost like all of physical media has become a collectible item because everyone's streaming things. Yes. So what I haven't seen is the major players. May, I, I guess maybe Paramount has done this with the Paramount Presents line. Mm-hmm. But I haven't seen anybody else really shift how they cater to... Because even your big release, if this is 2022 and it's Detective Pikachu it's not the same market it was when that came out to buy that on disc. It's, no, it's smaller. So and how do you hit the collector? Detected. So the best way to do it and um, due to the pandemic and uh, shifts, I am available to uh, be hired. And uh, I 
you won't have to pay to hear me talk uh, quite so much. But the I, I wrote like a little paper. You know, I write these dopey little things um, years ago, talking about how home entertainment and it's obvious. I isn't anything brilliant, but home entertainment kind of follows in the trail of a recording industry, right? And everything that's happened with digital, there's been an equivalent that happens in video. And it tails, you know, two years, five years, 10 years. And I very clearly articulated that uh, home entertainment was going to become like the LP, right? The album, right. or even not LP, but vinyl, right? And, yeah. And, Vinyl is a profit center for many small specialty labels and some owned by the majors uh, or controlled by uh, Warner Brothers has a water tower and they would do these releases targeting collectors and the collectors want the physical thing. Uh, They generally have a working record player, but sometimes they don't. A lot of times the uh, uh, code, you know, not every time, but a lot of times there's a code inside the record so that you can also get access to special digital distribution or they just, it's on Spotify, right? Like there's no need for it, but people come out for the cover art. They come out to support the artist. They come out for the curation, right? And that's, And that's not a bad model for home entertainment. And I I think I wrote that in like 2014, right? And that's that's where we are. Um, Yeah. And that's I think that's okay, right? And that's what you know. It's 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 about you and your values. The still the quality of Blu-ray is better than what you're going to see on a stream because it's not as compressed. As time goes on, that may be less true, but, uh, you know, 4K is different and the compression algorithms are improving. But, you know, but that's also kind of not the point because people don't buy LPs because they're like, oh, this <laughs> this album completely made on computers sounds so much better, scratchy. Right. You know, yeah. like, it's a it's not about it's that. a nostalgia thing. It's a collector mindset. It's a curation yeah. of a collection. It's yeah, yeah. it's it's new it's multiple things. But I I've been saying that for a few years now when people ask me to, because obviously the sales are going down, streaming's coming up, and I was like, I've been saying the same thing, you know, well look at Look at digital music and digital was iTunes, Spotify. Yeah, dominated. And now this comeback in vinyl came from zero, from nothing. Nobody was buying any vinyl. So we still have a billion dollar market where people are buying DVD and Blu-ray. And it hasn't slipped that far that we're at zero. So I think if you model that, you, you come to a you come to a middle point where you level out and you can, you know, keep this business 
going. I, I have no fear that it's going to die. People always tell me, oh, it's dead. It's dead. It's dead. I'm like, it's oh yeah. It's far from dead. There are there are dozens of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I in my job, when people would go, Oh, what do you do? There was a point around 2016 or so where people would look at me and they go, I don't have a player. Right. I'd be like, oh, okay. I mean, there's digital distribute, you know, like, yeah, yeah, you're not. It's fine. That's not you. Warner Archive sales, by the way, uh, and this might be because of the quality of the t- titles and, you know, there are other, but they've always, you know, and continue to go up, right? Compared to the larger market, you know, the, but Warner archives sales increase does not cover the decrease, right? It's not, yeah. it doesn't, it's, it's a overall, right? Yeah. Business people don't like red arrow down. They like green arrow up. It's, it's very simple. Like if you have ever gone into a room of business people and you can show them charts with green arrow up, Yes. Right. Right. It could be anything. Yeah. If you show them red arrow down and you're like, but there's so much money to make. They're like, why would I say yes to red arrow down? You know, why would you like, and this is just me on the street, like talking about, you know, movies and physical media, right. And a certain point where the average person is like, Oh, you're like a shoe salesman selling non-collectible shoes. Like this is like, there was this weird perception shift. And yeah. uh, the average MBA doesn't want to be in that business. They want to be in the cool business. I'm not, you know, and I'm, I'm painting broad strokes, but that's, yeah. you know, in the room, right? A theoretical room, that's what you find. But, you know, a good example from the music business was uh, around uh, 20... 16-ish people who started advocating for aggregating music publishing rights uh, were all of a sudden in demand and they, they were previously in like the media rights, you know, garbage bin. Like they were not considered the best salespeople, right? Who Who is securing Brazilian music, you know, rights for Brazil or... Peru, right? But these guys who were buying music rights at those levels, they immediately started making money when YouTube started paying out people who had music rights because they had to. Now, all of a sudden, that literally $500 investment is paying off monthly, right? And so then the big boys come in and then they start scooping that up. And then they start doing the same thing with... uh, digital rights, like, you know, like America's Funniest Home Videos, right? Like they launched a YouTube channel with old VHS. And at first people are like, that's crazy. But, you know, like a cat landing on somebody's crotch and they scream is funny in 1990. Yeah, no, I mean, it is, right? And guess what? People would sit and watch it. YouTube would serve them an ad and then it became one of the most profitable channels. And that's uh, that was just because a business guy realized that, presented it, and then you know now now that you there's a America's Funniest Home Video channel that's AVOD, right? You can get it on 
you know, like Samsung TV plus and, and some of those other things. And they, those make money, right? Yeah. Like that's yeah. where advertising <clears throat> is where big money is made in catalog. And it always kind of has been. Um, but again, Nat, right. I'm getting back to it. So it's like when somebody is putting together a library like that, then there's an opportunity to maybe get something on physical, you know, yeah. for a collector. I mean, you know, I don't know if a collector is going to be clamoring for the greatest cat videos of the nineties, but right. But, but there, there's, there are other things, you know, yeah. like soap operas or whatever. I mean, I'm just making oh. stuff up. No, absolutely. High, and high volume. You know, People want to own those TV shows. I have like all the Nickelodeon cartoons from the night. Exactly. I mean, those will sell well regardless. I mean, I'm sure. Uh, and people always say this. Why? Why do you buy them? They're out in streaming services, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, yeah, but I also want them on my shelf and I want to be able to show people. I can't show people a streaming collection. I want, you know, it's part of, it's part of me. It's my curated collection. It's something right. that I take very personally and um enjoy having in my house and i'll tell you even you know even though nobody has a player anymore and you know they're all like ah, oh, you still buy movies but when they come in this room and they look around ev- I, I don't know of anybody who's like this is stupid like everybody's like oh, do you have this movie can i check this do you have this one do you and i'm like yeah this is why it's so cool to me to do this because everybody has that feeling of wanting to go back to a blockbuster at some point. Yeah. Like you, yeah. you can't, you can't get that feeling from Netflix, HBO max, no matter what. And that's mm-hmm. why, that's why, I mean, that's part of why I do it. I also like to just have physical copies because it's who, who knows what they're going to edit next on streaming or remove. And you'll never see again. You know, part of that is, also why I keep physical versions of things. I don't like my stuff to be in a cloud when they decide to shut, you know, movies anywhere down in five years and you lose all thousand of your movies. Yep. Oops. I mean, you know what, what do you do there? Those are, yeah. And those traditional arguments hold, um, you know, just uh, on a personal level, I was scrambling and I think it's actually in a store, Jerry, but I was scrambling for (laughs) an old DVD of, uh, speaking of Batman, Legends of the Superheroes, the 1979 Hanna-Barbera Batman that kind of killed Batman for 10 years, you know, in terms of uh, <laughs> there was no live action Batman. I have a soft spot for it. I also like the Star Wars holiday special. But the, I mean, because they are products of their time and they're, and yeah. they, are, they are entertaining, even if you don't understand them or the context. I mean, that, but the, those those kinds of things in and of themselves, that's a panel at Comic-Con I'd go to, right? Like, you know, yeah. please explain this to me. Uh, and But Legends <laughs> of Superheroes, we we even did a presentation on it at the Paley Center, which I felt was a, a cultural high point. But uh, my girlfriend found it on Tubi, and she's like, oh, I've never seen it. And, you know, she puts it on, and I'm like, yeah, we can watch this version. And... I see it and I'm like, this is the wrong master. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like the only one. And she's like, no, it looks fine. And I'm like, 
going back in my head, like over 10 years to like the work that we did to, we took the original two inch master. We had it sent to UCLA where they lovingly, you know, did this like high res scan. You know, we could have released the master that they had. People would have been fine with it, but this new scan made it look good. And that, you know, that was a reason to upgrade your bootleg VHS, you know, like, and, and yeah. I actually cut like seven minutes of extras that we had found on tails. Cause I just thought it was funny that that I, but now I'm like, no, no, you should see this. And she's like, I, I don't care, <laughs> but, <laughs> but if I yeah. had it, you know, I'd be like, well, you can see their faces in this one, but that's a good example of just a, I mean, it's just, it's, it's so I mean, only people who care about that kind of stuff would empathize with that story. Anybody else would think I was being kooky, which I am. But but I also have a collect. I mean, I collect dead media. I, again, I'm unusual, but I have, I think, like almost 200 CED discs. Oh, wow. Are, so really dead media. Yeah. <laughs> Not just laser is, discs. Yeah, <laughs> CED. The, the, yeah, because they're not laser. They are albums in a, yeah. it looks like a cassette and there's a diamond stylus and they're two-sided. Uh, but they have their own unique art on them and they're mm -hmm. heavy. They, I, I had to buy special shelves because I crushed two Ikea shelves with them. <laughs> but I picked them up at thrift stores for like, you know, 50 cents. But I buy yeah. literally every one I could find because it just... You know, it's um, it has an interesting history. You know, there's uh, an old website called CED Magic, which tracks them that I don't think has been updated in 10 years, but it's still up there. You know, but that's just like, you know, that's uh, an extreme form of physical media signaling because people go, what the F is that? Right. They're like, nice laser yeah. disc. And I'm like, actually, right. Like <laughs> But it is a talking point either way. And, yeah. and the artwork is incredible. And, you know, they almost become like little art pieces of their own. Because I, I started giving them away as like birthday gifts to people, right? Like I like giving dead media to people, you know, like HD DVDs. <laughs> I'm like, here's here's a copy of, uh, you know, oh, God, what was one? Yeah, this like Trojan or They're just always like, Matt, Matt gives the best gifts. <laughs> But it's but it comes with a T-shirt. It's like oh, a T-shirt that's too small and a disc I can't play. I'm like, yes, I found it in the closet. But I'll make sure to invite you to my birthday party. <laughs> but you know, v VHS is something that everybody like. You know, even people who are Uber collectors do not understand the VHS revival at all. But people who I know people who do not collect much you know like and physical i mean they'll have some physical but they'll be way into vhs it's inexpensive it's fun just as you're saying it is literally the blockbuster experience and there are still many many vhs tapes that aren't available or they're different versions they have hilarious trailers i, I love all the opening logos you know because it's a different it's a different time and they still play, right? People are like, "Oh, yeah. they're dead." I mean, you know, but you're not you're not watching them to watch 
them at the best they can be. You're watching them through the lens of seeing them in the 2000s or the 90s or whenever, 80s or even 70s, if you get to these magnetic video releases, which I'm super into because those are the first studio releases. They're like 100 iconic VHS releases, right? That's a collectible. Yeah. No, and I, I get that because there is part of me that, you know, my favorite movie is Jaws and I watched it for the first time on VHS and I absolutely love my 4K disc and what they've done with it and it looks outstanding. The universe does great But job. there are times where I'm like, uh, imagine if I could just put this on like a 17-inch CRT with the VCR and just like yeah. watch it again, you know, or Halloween is one I love and it's like, again... Love my 4K version, but man, wouldn't it be nice to sit in a dark room with a VCR and watch Halloween on that crappy old tape and, you know, where it's almost scarier because you can't see as much. And, um, you know, there's there's definitely part of me that feels that way. So I get why people are going back to it. That and there's probably tens of thousands of VHS tapes that never made it to DVD and tens of thousands of DVDs that never make it to Blu-ray and and on and on. So, um, yeah. I get, I get it. And I think I honestly, I think it's good. I think it helps because you're going to buy that VHS tape for the nostalgia. And I have a feeling that those people will then go out and search for, well, what's the latest release of that? Could I buy, you know, the best version or buy the, the arrow video box set that, you know, is tied into this old VHS horror movie. And it should help all of physical media because it gets people back interested in collecting. My, Favorite way of approaching it, I mean, as a uh, professional, right, is any way to see the movie is is fine, right? Because ultimately a movie or a TV show is ultimately about the show. But when you become interested in the context, right, like, and the context around it, um, sometimes that becomes, you know, like, like uh, TV on Blu-ray from before 2006 is fascinating because nobody ever really considered at the time that they were making it that anybody would ever see it. Uh, maybe... Uh, some, and they did, there, there are exceptions like... Um, they would have European releases in the sixties and seventies of certain American shows that they would, because they didn't have international television distribution, you know, like they would show the incredible Hulk or Battlestar Galactica internationally on film. Right. And so they made sure that they would, you know, work at the aspect ratio, but you know, like made for TV films rarely, distributed outside of that. But but anyway, so now when you're seeing it this way, you're seeing it in a context that nobody ever saw it except maybe the people watching dailies, you know? Like it, it it's so you're watching a document that is well outside of what the intention was, right? Because a lot of people talk about intentionality like, "Oh, this is what the director yeah. intended." Well, nobody mm-hmm. intended that, right? So but does that make it wrong? No, it's like a a variant, right? Yeah. So I, I struggle with that with 4K and specifically the HDR. 
because how, you know, the director approved it, but he didn't know necessarily that this, you know, no, he obviously didn't know this technology existed when he made this movie. So how can you say, well, that's how I wanted it to look when that wasn't an option. That's how you want it to look now. Maybe that's how you envisioned it should have looked back then, but you know, and sometimes, sometimes they go crazy with it. Sometimes it's almost like revisionist color grading on, on some of these. And it's a totally different movie look and feel. Lots I, of I struggle with that. Yeah. Lots of filmmakers always have personal feelings about their work and like going back and fixing things, you know, if they can, yeah. but um, there are very few auteurs that are literally, you know, it's a it's group, right? There's no, it's not a painting. There is no like one version and yeah. uh, it's all light captured in some way. There's, there's no, everything is shadows on the wall in the cave and those shadows shift from device to device, you know, like, like it's, yeah. it's hard to capture that, but you know, there's spirit of there's uh, I mean, George Lucas is probably the most famous example of uh, somebody who goes back and changes his mind, uh, yep. but, but he, but he could. Right. And but that also makes my CED of star Wars worth more. <laughs> it does. Yeah. Cause you got the original, right. The, nothing's yeah. altered on that. Right. But it's, you know, it's still not, I mean, it's not, any resolution. I mean, it uh, arguably better than VHS, right? Like it's, it's, but it, it's all, it's all shades. Um, but I personally like not only recreating maybe a circumstance that I saw a movie or a TV show, but what others saw, you know, maybe historically like going to a historic theater, you know, built before I was born and, uh, you know, going to see a film and then they show shorts before it, right? Or like, you know, somebody, you know, there's a show ahead of it. I mean, there are so many ways to present and program this stuff in different contexts, you know, so who's who's to say that that is the way, but it's, you know, different. And if you can collect, to me, collect unique ways, right? Then yeah, uh, as a fan, that kind of makes it more fun and also a way that you can uh, see something you're familiar with or for the X amount of time. But with, you know, home entertainment, generally you're seeing it alone or with family people, same thing can't be said if you see it with a crowd, it's a, it's always and every crowd, you know, if you, if you have ever, uh, been in the audience of showing the same thing, right? The same piece of video in the same theater, even night to night, depending on who's in the crowd, the audience's reaction is different. It's always different. And, you know, you can kind of, I mean, you can't, you can't control that, but you can, you know, as a filmmaker, you have to adjust you know, the best you can for the, you're, you're trying to stimulate a reaction, but you don't know what, I don't know. It's, it's fun intellectually, but that's, that's where it is. But for a collector, right? Why collect? And uh, it's to grasp 
journalists to grasp these things, right? That that could be intangible, but make them literal. Your collection. Yeah. No, that makes sense. It is. You're, we're getting really deep, and you're having, I know, you're having I, to think here. I and by the way, I haven't even gone into the world of digital collectibles yet because, like that is yeah. the most mind-blowing next step, right? And I'm not just yeah. talking about like NFTs, which are a whole other subset. But if you've right. ever played like a video game for a long period of time, you, when you start, you're like, you know, and, and there's all kinds of games, but, you know, like, oh, why do some people value this skin or this item which may or may not have any game purpose right but it's just decorative but yep. it means something and signals something to other players right if it's especially if it's a multiplayer game or if it's not to you and as you get invested in the community now all of a sudden you're like oh that red bandana is valuable right and now you'd be yeah. willing to pay in-game currency or time to acquire it, to signal to other people you do that. That's collecting, right? That's the same yeah. thing, but it's just not, uh, it's an item you're displaying within that context, but it's uh, not, you know, you don't, do you own it, right? You don't. Yeah, I mean, they you could do. shut the game server down and it's gone. Sure. You know, you don't. And my, and my storage space can burn taking all my, <laughs> you know. It's true. Yeah, I know. I mean, you, you yeah, it could go either way, but that's it, it is interesting what's happened cuz I've seen this happen in so I not I not only collect movies, but I collect sports cards. Mm-hmm. And that was another market funny that died completely. And then not completely, but it was it was pretty yeah. dead and the pandemic brought it, it it is it's huge now. The pandemic brought it back. It's huge. All the stuff that I used to buy is now three times as expensive. Um, all the stuff I have is worth three times as much. But now they're getting into digital collectibles too. And I assume, well, the movie studios are already doing it. Everyone in entertainment. I got an email from the Boston Celtics yesterday that said they're going to start offering NFTs to bring you to the next generation of fandom. I have no idea what it's going to be, but it isn't a new phenomenon because you're right for. I mean, for as long as video games have existed and as long as the internet has existed, there have been online games that people have been spending absurd amounts of money on skins or spaceships or planets they want to own in these big, you know, multiplayer games. I mean, there's, we're, we're talking six figure million dollar transactions sometimes, and it is all the same. So I'm curious, you know, how that's going to evolve. I, read an article, I guess it was like 2007 or six, which fascinated me at that time. Those were like when the first digital currencies were coming out for games, you know, like Linden dollars and world of Warcraft gold, mm-hmm. what people kind of focused on writing about. And that actually brought me into those spaces because I went, you know, like I'm, the idiot who's like, yep, money's a construct. Like I'm, I'm there. And not that I uh, started speculating in, you know, Linden dollars or anything, but one of, I decided as a reporter, I was going to illegally buy world of Warcraft gold. And 
it was the funniest drug deal uh, of all time because <laughs> I had to arrange with this guy and I had to get them $10. And then we like our virtual characters met in like the town market. And I'm like, Hey, Hey, do you have my, my gold brother? You know? And he's like, quiet, <laughs> come over in the corner. We can't be seen. I'm just <laughs> dying. It was best $10 I ever spent. Cause it was so funny, but, but there was a demand for it. Right. Like, you know, like that because people valued that and it was people figured out how to uh, bridge the online and offline gap. Uh, it was a resource. Somebody literally had to go out there and mine the gold and then right. they, they transferred it. That's Bitcoin, right? It's like this. somebody has to mine the gold. Yeah. And then it has a value and you can, and once you could transfer it off of offline, now it has some kind of real world uh, hook, but that's what like with sports teams, right? How, you know, a baseball card is a thing that's printed, you know, originally given away on like a cigarette packet, right? Like, and, uh, yeah. but how do you bridge that online and offline experience? Uh, yeah. Sports, but maybe like, usually you see it first in kids stuff, like, Hey, join the Roy Rogers club or the Burger King club, you know, like those would be the first sort of steps, but those, true, yeah, those, those memberships where you're like, I'm part of this club. And now all of a sudden these companies are kind of tracking you and marketing you. Yeah. Right? And this goes back to like the fifties and sixties or it kind of took off in the seventies where it became automated. But that's, that's a, uh, you know, I was subscriptions today like you know and they now come to my watch i'm like why why am i getting these <laughs> uh alerts from you know uber eats like oh yeah you know it's it's vibrating on my wrist how to help mm -hmm. but they but right it's it's that's that i mean but i'm hungry right like that's the bridging that divide so yeah uh, movies again like kind of same thing you know, it's it, but we as fans, there already is, uh, there's a digital file right now, or even physical files, you know, because uh, film prints still exist and it's a way, but but you have to, uh, it's just sort of like online and offline and, and consumption. And where do you consume it, right? And what does yeah. it mean? And uh, but it's hooked into storytelling of some kind, and that's what makes it different than a baseball card, right? Or a football card, because those are representations of a moment or a player's experience, right? Yeah, I mean, it's not a Yeah, game, a time period. Yeah, but, right. an era. Like the stats, yeah. You know, like they love yeah. to put that stuff on there. Now I value it as a token. Um, I say this as somebody who, has a, a lot of uh, I collected sports cards and comics as a kid, and now I'm like, oh, I should probably pull these out of the storage space and and stare. Oh, at let me let me know when you do. I I treated them. Yeah, not, well, that, yeah, I'm not I a mean, that's good, yeah. That's the I thing, know. right? Because everybody just put them in their bike wheels, and now. I mean that that's why I like the older stuff. I'm I'm looking I, I have them right above me here. I have a whole display of they're all from 1965. Um 
that's my favorite set for baseball cards. And I, I have a bunch of them oh, displayed sadly, here. I know those, <laughs> you know, like those? I got, I got into it as a kid. It was like, but what access did I have? You know, like my, you know, what, um, it's like kids, older brothers would like, you know, they'd break into their older brother's collections and I'd be like, Oh, yeah. you don't want that Hank Aaron card. You know, who's he? <laughs> right. I'm like, looking at Hank right now. Yeah, He's up here on the a wall. Good card. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I mean, it, it but I, I am curious, like, how does I'm no, I guess I'm no dummy when it comes to movies. And I know that my physical collection is, you know, it's for me, but I also know that there's a, there's a future that I'm going to have to adapt to and, and play that game probably to continue to get the content I want. Um, that it could it could change and i'm no i used to be like streaming sucks and don't don't stream and you only should buy physical and like as i've kind of learned more and i've spent more time in this world i don't feel that way i probably never felt that way i've always had a netflix subscription and a hulu subscription and you know i i watch stuff on there arguably more than I probably watch physical media from time to time. Like there's TV shows, documentaries and things that don't exist that easy. I want to watch. It's easy. Right. It's, That's it's convenient. I'm, I'm downstairs with an, with an eight month old baby and it's like, Oh, do I want to run upstairs and try to pick the movie? And, yeah. Or am I going to watch whatever's on Hulu? So yeah, it happens a lot. I'm no dummy. Like I know that's the future. Um, and you know where things are headed, but I do still think there's always a space for phys- I mean, I have vinyl records the same I have Spotify. I mean, it's, I have less vinyl records and listen to less than I do on Spotify, but I have them because I like the artwork and I like having a curated collection. So I think there'll always be a space for this as big as digital and digital collectibles get. People are always going to want that physical object in their hands, no matter what it's, it's a human nature thing. I think I agree. There's, there's something to the programming and I guess when I was saying like, yeah. um, there's a funny short circuit that can happen with digital collectibles, but the brain pathway is the same, you know, like, yeah. like once that link is forged, you're like, oh, wow, this is, has the same kind of dopamine pathway or however you want to describe it, right? You're, it's just a different kind of input output. I mean you know, collectors be collecting, right? Whether it's uh, interesting things they find on the ground, right? Like, you know, you're like, ooh, nice stick, you know? Uh, but that's, you, you're you you're curating, right? And that's, yeah. uh, and then you, it's a token of some kind. And where that token lives, you know, uh, here, look behind, I mean, this is not, I, I didn't clean up for this. You know, like, and it gets it gets worse <laughs> when you open a closet door. Uh, it's not, uh, but it's a. That doesn't mean that um, messy people are collectors, or vice versa. You know, it's yeah. just uh, how you value your time and uh, resource resource allocations. Yeah. and then and if I mean, you're lucky, right? You get to work behind the scenes to see how the sausage is made. And that's, that was, that was my uh, experience. And that was why as maybe a film fan first, right. Film and TV fan who 
uh, was learning and had learned how to make the initial product. It was really interesting to see how it would kind of come through and find second, third, fourth life and all the ways that it gets out and gave me an appreciation of even how distribution history, right? And this is get this gets really in the weeds. Distribution history, rights and clearances, masters, companies buying each other affects curation because if it's pulled off the market and no one can see it, nobody knows it's a good movie. Nobody knows it's a good movie if you can't see it, right? But things that may have not been considered good movies as they would get played, you know, over time, they find they can find their audience eventually. Some of them, some don't, right? But but then now that the home video version the uh, starts to accumulate value. Uh, here, here's one other thing I didn't say, and that because this goes into it, and it's a weird uh, byproduct, and I I forget I always forget to mention it when we talk about it on the podcast. The more popular a film was in its initial run, it's kind of also the older it is, the more popular it was, the harder it is to uh, bring it back onto the market because the, and depending on who owned it, but the negatives would have been run through the machine over and over to make new, you know, it looks like, it's like, uh, which is why you're not really supposed to run the negative very often, right? And there's, you know, all kinds of generations, but right, but all the different generations coming from the negative down get used and then they get scratched up and then they become harder and harder to use. That, that was the reason for the Thin Man, right? Thin Man was so popular that it, uh, the elements weren't in great shape. And, you know, the custodians of, of those films were did a good job in keeping them, but it's, you know, what uh, they didn't have a scanner, right? A digital scanner where it could be scanned once and not touched. You know, they would go, they would do like a, you know, an optical reversal, right? You know, cause you'd have the negative and then you, they'd make a positive and then they'd make a negative from that positive and make prints from that. And then they'd go up. Right. That's interesting. Never thought about it that I've always been like, you know, this movie was so popular. Why didn't they preserve this a little bit better? But it, I mean, it, that makes total sense. You know, if it's, if it's popular, it's going to keep getting run. And every time it gets run, that's one more chance to scratch it or get something on the print. And yeah, it means that you'll probably have all the elements because they probably made a lot of them. Right. So they have a higher chance of surviving, but the quality of the, you know, so it's like when we would have releases, there'd be these reports and I, you know, my boss would track this with, you know, the people in the vaults, but it would be like, here's a reel from, you know, this version at this, you know, level, right. Of preservation. And, Oh, the best one we found is down here for real too, but because this one is garbage and scratched. So you put together the best ones possible. Uh, sometimes, you, it, you know, sometimes you notice a shift, but most of the time, it you know, it looks, I mean, you can correct for it, but it's, uh, you know, when it gets like, uh, we, we, released, we released the Bowery Boys. There was like a huge 
set of those and they came on DVD, but some of them were only available in 16 millimeter, right? Cause they would be run on television and there were 16 millimeter distribution prints. So it's like, uh, we'd have 35 for a reel and then it switches to 16 and you can, you can kind of perceive it even on a DVD, but then when it comes time to scan it again, right. For a Blu-ray now, maybe someone will found that missing element and then that problem will disappear. I mean, that's, it's like, you know, the end of Indiana Jones, it's like, yeah, that, but with film. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, just like Indiana Jones, uh, and this isn't, I'm not, well, I mean, it would even happen with Warner Brothers stuff, but uh, it certainly happens with my own uh, archival film collection, aka the stuff in my garage. You open it up and vinegar syndromes hit it, and it's like, you get like the, I call it death salad. It's like on safety film, uh, people are like, oh, it's safe. And it turns out that there's this organism condition right and it, it, it can spread um that uh, pulls the emulsion from the film and it creates an acetate and when you open up the can over time it can actually when it oxidizes it can turn film to dust like uh it, it can you know so they have vinegar vaults because you can you know the film is dead etc there's so much to that but but um yeah it can you know, there's a possibility of that stuff uh, just dissolving. But, but it's uh, if you've got a pro lab, they you know they inspect that stuff. They know how to deal with it. You keep it refrigerated. Also, studios have now, you know, like there was a fire at Universal, which was horrible. But you try to have copies at multiple different locations. You know, there, there's salt mines that we keep stuff in. You know, all around, you got to keep it literally all around the world so that uh, if there's a disaster, one place, it doesn't take out all your IP. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I, I, I feel like it is it is amazing how there's, I feel like every week there's a there's a new reel found somewhere of, you know, oh, we, we found the missing reel from this or we found extra footage from this that we didn't know existed and it's a director's cut or something. It's, it's constantly happening. So it is, it's amazing. It is, that's a good, a good point. The Indiana Jones ending is, yeah. I mean, that is how it feels sometimes stuff's just packed away and you never know what you're going to find in someone's attic or basement or, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. And with um, the news of people, more people are aware if they find stuff that it might have value you know, like yeah. wars, you know, like, like that's that kind of mentality is out there. And sure. two, more people are going through their archives to digitize them because uh, back catalog is now uh, worth money. Right. Yes, yeah, uh, definitely. If you can release something old, you don't, and it's, you know, certain, uh, certain rights have lapsed. It, it doesn't, you know, you don't have to pay anybody. Right. If you own the rights. So like music, right. If you own, the publishing and rights, then it's yours. Thanks. Yeah. You know, universal music group. <laughs> well, we've been, that was a lot, right? Hour. Yeah. Hour, an hour. I, 15, you, I love it. I don't stop and it's terrible, but this is a good place, right? Cause now this episode is a collectible. 
It is. I'm go. This episode will be available as an NFT uh, immediately. <laughs> Good. Immediately following its YouTube publishing, you can have a uh, a screenshot of the YouTube video, which I will make an NFT. Yeah, there you go. That's it, right there. Yeah, that's the I NFT. It. I did it for you. But no, I I. I I appreciate it. I appreciate the time. Oh, yeah. This is a good, yeah, long, long, nice long episode. But I'm okay with it. Let's. Right, I good. mean, hey, if we have, if we have stuff to talk about, we're going to keep talking. So no, no, I'll I'm put all the now. links in the description. Everything will be there. You can check Matt out, and you know, of course, just keep supporting physical media and um, keep collecting because it's fun and that's what we do. So, all right, I'll uh, catch you guys on the other side of the interview. Thanks, Matt. So guys, I hope you enjoyed that interview. Uh, Matt is definitely somebody that I will have back on the podcast at some point. He is so interesting. He had so much to say. I mean, some of the stuff he talked about, like um, just right at the very end there about the film negatives and how actually if a film's more popular, you may have a harder time actually scanning that, you know, to 4K. I'm thinking the total opposite. If it's popular, they must have maintained it well. Well, no, they had to scan it a bunch of times to replicate it for other theaters and make duplicates. So really, really interesting insights and all his knowledge on physical media and home entertainment was just he, he's just an interesting interesting individual so um you know he, he's he's doing this stuff forever um if you're one of the labels out there who is looking for some help you know matt's freelancing now and, and working with physical media labels so you know reach out to him i'll put all the links in the description where you can find him on, on twitter um his tiktok account is pretty weird as he said but you know what uh, I give him props. He, he tried something. He tried something different and I'm following him now. So if you want to check that out, all those links will be there. So all the links are in the description and you know, Matt's just, he's a collector himself. He's, he's the exact type of person you would want out there uh, behind the scenes at these labels. Um, he's very knowledgeable great at marketing. He completely understands the collector mindset. Um, so hopefully you guys check out all his links and, and make sure you know you support him. Um, also make sure you support our sponsor, Fright Rags. Really excited that they came on the channel to, to sponsor today, this podcast, this video. So huge thanks to Fright Rags. And as always, uh, make sure you're subscribed on YouTube. If you're watching the video version of this, make sure you're following along on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll also have all my links to social media accounts where you can find me and the podcast and different things going on in my life down in the description as well. So uh, next week, we're talking to Ralph Potts, who is from AVS Forums. He's been a Blu-ray and DVD and 4K disc reviewer since 2002. So he goes way back in the days of physical media. He's been doing this for 20 years. So we're going to talk to him about you know his home theater experiences, reviewing movies, uh, sort of the evolution of physical media, how he curates his collection, all that great stuff that you expect from this podcast. So stay tuned for that one. Make sure you don't miss next week. You're following along, subscribed. Um, but yeah, I appreciate all the support. So uh, make sure you're following along. Have a great rest of your day. Stay safe, stay healthy out there, and I'll talk to you all soon. Coming soon. Be sure to subscribe to the Films at Home podcast using your favorite app so you don't miss another episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review this podcast, which helps us out tremendously. You can also help support us by watching our short-form content over on YouTube and TikTok by searching Films at Home. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at films underscore at underscore home. The intro and outro were created by Elon Osborne. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.